If you have a Bible, you can turn to Psalm 119 to verse 161. We'll read from 161 to 168. This is the very word of God. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word, like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. Thus far the reading of God's word. Join me in prayer as we ask his blessing upon the sermon this evening. Father, in your word are treasures, as not only your word testifies, but our heart testifies, as the Spirit bears witness with our heart that indeed your word endures forever. And these riches are riches which satisfy. For they set forth the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we ask that as your word is read and proclaimed, uh, that you would uh, nurture the life of faith, that you would cause to strengthen the life of hope, that you would build us up in the life of love as you press upon our hearts the excellent portion which you have given unto us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And teach us how to take hold and to walk by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Do this, Father, for your glory and for our good. For we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We can turn in the New Testament to the book of Second Peter. Continuing this pause in question 36 to detailed blessings beside. So I'll, I'll read Second Peter chapter 3 verses 14 through 18 and then I'll read once more Westminster Shorter Catechism 36. This is the very word of God. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. 
There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. And then Westminster Shorter Catechism 36 asks, What are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? The benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, and perseverance therein to the end. So trust you heard why... The passage in 2 Peter was selected for this fourth blessing beside, increase in grace. Peter says, plainly, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Immediately, we're struck with a question. How can you command someone to grow? Does it strike you as odd? The verb is in the imperative, and it is the verb that you would expect to find stated of organic life. Plants grow. Children grow. Peoples grow. To encourage growth is a strange thing. I'll camp out besides Olivia's crib. Grow, grow, grow. I trust she heeds. To command growth is stranger still. And yet it's plain that we're instructed not just to pursue growth, but to grow. Grow in grace. It's not the only place that this occurs. Paul says very similarly, Ephesians 4.15, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. In both cases, Peter and Paul use this organic life of a body, a physical body, to help us understand what ought to take place in the spiritual life of the Christian, the spiritual life of the church. But that's partly where the strangeness comes in. On the one hand, we can say, no one has ever commanded me to grow in my physical life. I never set out to grow. It was far more something that just happened to me. (laughs) I just seemed to grow and then stop and then grow tired and sore. (laughs) A lot easier than I used to. But the point is that I did not pursue growth. I just grew. And there's a reasonable sense in which our spiritual growth does take place in the same way. It's something that just happens. Now, that's not the angle that we're taking on the question here, but we should give it fair shake. Scripture gives pictures of this. You can think of the parable in Mark 
The farmer who scatters seed, you can ask the millers about this, the farmers who scatter seed on the ground. You go to sleep and you wake up. You go to sleep and you wake up and the seed just grows. It sprouts, first the ear, however the process goes. But the parable makes plain and the Lord Jesus Christ emphasizes this point about the farmer. He knows not how it grows. It just happens. <laughs> growth itself is kind of a mystery, isn't it? Life, the principle of life that we carry about in us physically, the physical principle of life, that it grows up to a certain point is rather a mystery. Children, do you measure your height as a family? Maybe you've come across things like this in old books, which are the best books. A family will gather around a few times a year and you'll make a little mark on the door frame where the top of the child's head is. And next to that line, you write your name and the month and the year. And then you do it again a few months or a year later and poof, the line is higher. There you are, bigger. You don't remember when it happened. You're just bigger. <laughs> You're completely unaware of the moment by moment progression for growth. Here we go, is a series of imperceptible motions that are striking in their cumulative weight. And in some ways, Christian growth is like that. I stand back rather in awe. All these years walking with the Lord, much to lament. Much weakness still plain. But more growth than when I first set out. I trust that you too can mark your Christian life in a similar sense. You don't know how it happened, but praise be to God. It happened. But we ought not to content ourselves with general growth. For while it is absurd to command physical growth, it's plainly not absurd to command spiritual growth. Because God does it. Grow in grace, he says. You must grow. Your life depends upon it. Now, growth is a mystery, but health is not that mysterious. We know what makes for health. We know what children need for healthy growth. They need nutritious food. They need physical activity. They need rest and sleep. And we should probably add they need love and affection for the biological life of man is ever always tied up with the spiritual life of man. These are the basic elements. And if you take any of these away, growth will suffer. But it also then stands to reason if you attend to these appropriately, there will be growth. The same is true for a healthy Christian growth. We know how to make healthy Christians. For to make a healthy Christian is to make a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ has not left us in ignorance about this. He hasn't left us to guess what it looks like to grow or how we might grow. What it looks like to follow Christ and make a disciple of Christ and strengthen that disciple of Christ. Peter in his first letter uses this same image. 1 Peter 2.2 2, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that you may grow up into salvation. It's by appropriately attending 
those gifts that God says will result in your life, that you grow in that life that he has given you. But we can go further. Consider the supreme art of life and health. I'll wait till everybody attends to me. Consider the supreme art of life and health. Athletics. Paul invites us into that realm at several points in Scripture, doesn't he? He doesn't just liken the Christian life to the general state of physical life. He likens the Christian life to the athletic state of life. He says that he's a boxer at one point who doesn't just punch the air but disciplines his body. He likens himself to a runner who runs a race. Even calling Timothy a soldier would have been an athletic and physical endeavor. And so we can ask, well, what about the athletic life yields insight into that spiritual life? Now, we have a number of athletes in the church. And as an athlete, one must know their own body. One must know their own frame of health and fitness. Ask our weightlifters. And I'm sure they'll be able to tell you their max weight that they can manage on a given lift and how many reps they can manage for that lift. Ask our runners how far they can run and the speed that is at the maximum of their physical health. Ask our cross-country skiers or our bikers how long it takes to bike a hundred miles or even our Tolkien-like walkers reading the fellowship of the ring he takes a certain delight in the hobbits just walking over the countryside even our walkers you can ask them and they will be able to answer how many miles they can go until they reach their limit and the legs start to ache athletes know their strength and even more than this they know their weaknesses and their weaknesses far from undoing them provides for them an occasion to grow intentionally, to strengthen intentionally. Make the life, make the leap to the spiritual life. Where are you weak in grace? Can you enter into this consideration without being undone? Can you enter into this consideration not as that which destroys us and beats us over the head, but that good endeavor of being searched and known for the purpose of being encouraged and grown by the God who knows our weaknesses, who knows our sin, and who gave Christ to us even still? Where are you weak in grace? Is it prudence? You always find yourself saying or doing the wrong thing at the, right, at the wrong time. You don't know when to stay silent. You don't know when to speak up. You lack prudence. <laughs> Is it temperance? It's so easy for me to overindulge in good gifts. A nap becomes an occasion for laziness and indolence. A meal becomes an occasion for gluttony. Even a TV show becomes an occasion to binge watch. Everywhere around us, intemperance is set on display. Once you find something enjoyable, you're going to make a mess of it. Is it fortitude? You lack the courage to speak the truth in love when the time comes. 
You lack the courage to stand up for what is right without rising up against the other person. That's fortitude. These are the virtues that Christ sets on display. But additionally to knowing weakness, not for the purpose of being undone, but for the purpose of understanding your growth or stage thereof, in addition to weaknesses, know where you're strong. Not for the purpose of encouraging spiritual pride, which is always repugnant, but for the purpose of encouragement that life is at work in you. And because life is at work in you, the Son is to be praised because He is the author and the giver of spiritual life. For all grace is from Christ, which is our second observation. This life is something that only Christ can give. And growing in this life is bound up with knowing Jesus Christ more and more. It would be a deadly mistake to hear the command to grow and to assume from this that we can bring about growth by our own power in an absolute sense. It's true that we now have an appetite for righteousness. We're like those who subsisted on poison for our whole life, who are finally given true food. And we think, oh, so this is food I never knew before. I was pleased to eat poison, but now I've eaten the bread of heaven. Now I've tasted of the water that Christ alone gives. We have a spiritual appetite for righteousness that is from the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're wholly dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ, not just for the new appetite, but for the sustaining and the maintaining and the strengthening and the satisfaction of that new appetite. Every one of those words was chosen specifically, so I hope you heard them. <laughs> Said them kind of fast. For the maintaining, the sustaining, the strengthening, and the satisfying of that new spiritual appetite. Isn't that what Micah yearned for? That fig? You saw how Christ was that fig? Now that grace comes to us from Christ is clearly implied in question 36. That our increase in grace comes from Christ is plainly implied in question 36. For we're considering the benefits which come to us as Christ applies the redemption that he purchased. So he's purchased for us not just the right to life, but the strengthening of his life in us throughout this earthly life. He bought that for us with his blood. So we can observe plainly that only the Lord Jesus Christ gives life. And he gives it to all who come to him. He alone is the true vine, and we are the branches. And the life in the branches never ceases to be independent of the vine. If you are severed from the vine, what happens? You die, for the branch possesses no life in itself. Further, we observe that only one who belongs to the vine, who is grafted into the vine, can meaningly receive the exhortation to grow in the grace which the vine supplies. 
There is no use telling a dead man to grow in a life that he does not possess. The exhortation assumes the possession of the principle. The exhortation to grow in life assumes that you have been given life. And this by the Lord Jesus Christ. We can also notice that similar to this morning, there is no tension between promise and prayer. There's no tension between provision and pursuit. We pray to grow in grace because Christ has promised that we will grow in grace. To claim the one and not do the other is to ignore Scripture. To downplay what is plain in Scripture, though it oftentimes seems fraught with tension for us. We pursue growth in grace because Christ provides growth in grace. There is no tension between these things. But the question then is, how do we receive more of this grace? How do we increase in this grace? How do we receive more of Christ's life? Well, first, we can note that it is intentional. And second, we can note that it's intimately bound up with a growth in knowledge. The intentionality of the pursuit is plain from chapter 1 of this same epistle. Peter writes in 1.5, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. Similarly, in our passage, back in verse 14, notice some of these words, be diligent. Verse 17, take care. <laughs> make every effort. Be diligent. Take care. Care. These are words expressing intentionality. Experiencing this, I'm trying to get in shape to run a race. Like you, you don't show up for a long race not having been intentional about preparing for that race. I can remember taking a group of high school students on a hike along the edge of a, a cliff with a steep precipice. It was a terrifying experience. I lost 10 years of my life. It was only 30. Before we went up, I was constantly exhorting them. And it was not plain whether they were listening. <laughs> Take care. This is important. This is a dangerous situation. You must exercise due care. To be careless up there would be disastrous. And so it is for the Christian life. It is a treacherous way. Christ says it's a narrow way. Now, on the one hand, our comfort, the foundation of our comfort, is the security of belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. That he will not lose a single sheep for whom he has died. But that comfort is not to the neglect of attending to the realia of the danger. The realia of the severity of the situation. Peter says, take care. He doesn't say, hey, don't worry about it. You're fine. Now, Peter knows that you're secure. He says so in chapter 1 of his first epistle. He says, your inheritance is untouchable. 
because it's being guarded in heaven. You yourselves are being guarded by the divine power, which incidentally made all things and upholds all things. He couldn't say anything more striking about your security if he tried. And yet he says, take care. Be diligent. Make every effort. They're not mutually exclusive. They go hand in hand once again. It is a treacherous way. We are in good hands, but that never causes us to indolence. That never moves us to carelessness. We can also hear how this growth, this increase in grace is also bound up with the knowledge of Christ. And it's the thickest sense of that word knowledge. Peter says this plainly here, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. To know Christ is both to see and to love him. You don't need me to teach you Hebrew to know that word know is a thick word. It's a thick word. This understanding of Christ facilitates and prompts intimacy, fellowship, delight. For to see Christ clearly is to come to love him more, for he is most lovely. He is most worthy of our love. To see Christ and not to love him is not to see him. Not to see him in the thickest sense. Imagine you read the greatest novel ever written. It shall remain nameless. And you walked away from this magnificent piece of art, shrugging your shoulders. Eh, I didn't see it. Well, it can be debated whether you actually read it or not. Certainly whether you understood it. For to read it, to understand it, is to love it, for it is that excellent. Knowing and loving are intimately tied up. We don't want to identify them completely, but they're most intimately tied up. One day, maybe they're exactly the same thing. Right now, there's a little bit of a gap. Psalm 1 is most instructive on this point. Who is the blessed man? Who is the felicitous man? Let's recover that word. Felicitous. Felicity. Who is the happy man? The man with life is the man whose delight is in the instruction of Yahweh. And on that instruction, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. There's a delight in God's word. That's what it says. His delight is in the instruction of the Lord. We have many amusements. I suspect we do not have many delights. Those rich veins of satisfaction. What delights you? God's word is likened to rich honey. The honey of the honeycomb. Have you ever taken honeycomb into your mouth? There's a richness to it. Fine gold. Bread. You ever walk into a house where there's freshly 
baked bread. I'm not talking about the loaf. You get it Safeway. I'm talking about someone who has put the time and the effort to make bread and the whole house smells of heaven. There's a richness to it. There's a delight to it. You're just like, I just want to bathe in this smell and eat wherever it's coming from. That's what God's word is likened to marrow. There's a richness to all of these. These are delights. God's word is a delight. There's a vein of satisfaction that it opens up that cannot be found anywhere else. For you are an immortal soul. And there is only one thing that we have that is immortal. God's word endures forever. Everything else is going to be gone, burned, changed. God's word is a source of rich delight. But there's also a preoccupation with God's word. On that word, he meditates day and night. We do not meditate easily. I believe we've touched on this before. Our attention is shot to pieces. Agree? Our attention is shot to pieces. You did it yourself. Right there with you. I feel this. I'm running. I begin a mile praying for some of you. I can't make it to a quarter mile maintaining the line of prayer without my mind wandering everywhere. We have shot our attention to pieces. But there are ways to improve it. But it takes effort. It takes intentionality. But if the vein of blessing in some part is kind of tied up with our ability to attend with sustained attentiveness for a prolonged period of time, is it worth it? Maybe it's worth it reading books instead of watching Netflix just to recover something of that attention span. Just to recover something of that cognitive, let's call it soulish capacity that God gave us that we've just frivolously spent. I'm right there with you. Meditating on God's law is a source of blessing. Perhaps it's worth recovering. Perhaps it's worth intentionally endeavoring after knowing how to do this. For it's plain that in this act there is blessing. Because that's exactly what this picture closes with. Meditating on God's instruction places a tree next to a stream. <laughs> it's this constant and ceaseless supply of life such that the tree is supplied in everything that it needs. It yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. The stream feeds the root. It supplies the life. It generates the growth. The delight in God's law, the sustained attentiveness to God's law, the intentionality of attentiveness to God's law, this is what yields increase and life. And close by marking what Peter points out as the benefit for intentionally pursuing such increase, such growth. Peter's primarily concerned in this letter with imposters. 
And these imposters are fluent in some of the language of the Christian faith, but they know nothing of its truth and power. And in fact, the primary indication that they know nothing of the power of God is their immoral behavior. And that's why Peter exhorts his church to supplement faith with virtue. Supplement faith with virtue, he instructs them in the beginning. Peter's concern is with those claiming the faith and yet pursue licentiousness. That has always been around in the church. It's astonishing. This is Paul, right? Well, that's sin freely that grace may abound. Same thing here. They're pursuing licentiousness, using the faith as an occasion to do so. So whatever the iteration of it is, know that the people of God are perennially vulnerable to this abuse in thinking. And so Peter says, no, 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 supplement your faith with virtue. I was actually reading Irenaeus's against heresies the other day, and I was struck by how the false teachers, even in this esoteric system, this elaborate portrait of demiurges, where they take like this or that little piece of scripture and pervert it, just like the teachers are doing here. That's what he says, right? They take Paul's letters and they pervert them to their own destruction, right? Sin freely, grace may abound. What's the bottom line about this all esoteric teaching that Irenaeus was up against? The bottom line was that the teachers were interested in sexual immorality and gain. Money and pleasure! No, 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 no. Such a sophisticated system of demiurges must have something more noble at its heart. Irenaeus is like, no! At the end of the day, it's about pleasure and money. And you can be confident that that's what a lot of stuff is about. <laughs> I don't care how sophisticated the intellectual system is. At the end of the day, man will expend an inordinate amount of effort to intellectually justify his base passions. Right? Right? It's been going on. It's not new. Peter warns us against this, and one of the ways that he warns us against this is to increase in grace. Not just to posture us to be able to recognize it, but to inoculate us against it. Because at the end of the day, what are they saying? They're saying the same old lie. Sin is pleasure. And Jesus said, no, obedience is pleasure. I have a bread that you don't know about. And it's to do the will of my Father in heaven. Obeying and loving. Oh, we're going to see when all is made clear that they were never that different. This is one of the loveliest observations in C.S. Lewis's Paralandra. He meets the Eve of Venus and she can't conceive of a difference between loving and obeying. So, no, I love him and so I obey. I don't understand what you're saying right now. I think when glory dawns, we're going to be in a similar position. So Peter is working to equip his congregation to stand against one of these most ancient errors that somehow the faith is an occasion to pursue licentiousness. Peter says, no, 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 the faith is the occasion to truly pursue virtue. 
to truly pursue godliness. This is exactly what Paul wrote to Timothy. As for you, O man of God, that is a fantastic title. God's man. Sometimes I wish I was a knight. As for you, O man of God, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. You're God's man. And just as being Arthur's man compelled you to seek the grail, so being God's man in Christ compels us to seek the beauty of godliness. For that is our ultimate portion. It will be who we are all in all on the day of the resurrection and the conservation of new creation. But he also says, add knowledge to faith and virtue. Many claim belief in God or faith in Christ but seem to know nothing of the God they profess or his Christ or his redeeming work. In fact, to insist that knowledge is a necessary part of the growth in grace offends many people, does it not? Now it's true. We must say this is true. Oftentimes faith starts with very little knowledge and only a little bit of knowledge is necessary to save. I can recall coming to faith in Christ based upon the barest of knowledge. I knew suddenly and most terribly that I was a sinner and that God was just. And shortly after this, I recalled that Christ promised himself as a friend of sinners. That in fact, God had sent him for this very purpose. And that was about all I knew. That was the sum and the substance of the truth which saved me. And I can remember reading the Bible after that and feeling like, I know next to nothing. All of this is strange to me. But I knew Christ, friend of sinners. So only a little bit of knowledge is necessary to save. But one does not linger with a little bit of knowledge about the one who does save. So we see these abuses of Knowledge set forth is that which does not benefit. But we also see the abuse of knowledge where people claim to know and yet abound in cruelty and harshness or pride. What does Paul say? If I have all knowledge but possess not love, I have nothing. He's not condemning knowledge as such. But unless knowledge is the means unto godliness, it's false knowledge. Or it's a deficient knowledge. For to know is to love, and to love is to grow. And so then Peter can say coherently as a guard against these various abuses, this is the safe way. This is the sure ground. Supplement faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. He closes by saying in verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be craving these things, church, for they are the very things Christ has promised 
to you. Be praying for these things, church, for they come to us by our Father's provision as we seek them in prayer. Be encouraging one another on in these things, church, for we were not left to walk this Christian life alone, but side by side as the family of God. May we be known by the fruit of Christ's life, which he promises will adorn his own more and more until it is all in all when he returns. Let's pray. Father, how excellent are your gifts, your word, sanctify it to us, press what is true upon our hearts, exalt the incarnate word, our Lord, our Savior, our King, that seeing him we may love him and be quicker and quicker to trust him, to yield our life, our lives at his feet in our act of reasonable worship. For you have supplied us with everything necessary, Father. Help us to hear these things rightly. Keep us from the abuses which our heart and our error and our folly is so quick to inject into the plainness of your truth. Keep us from sinking down. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.